0: At Fidelity, value is automatic, starting with the rate you can get on your cash when you open a new retail brokerage account. Learn more at fidelity.com slash trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Bad Money. Welcome to America. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What happened to the long-awaited rollover? A few days ago, this market was in the grips of a powerful sell-off. Did that decline just suddenly vanish into thin air? Sell, 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 buy, 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 buy. buy, buy. One day the sky is falling. The next day it's all good, man. Dow surging 373 points. S&P Paul voting 1.29 percent. Bye bye bye. Nasdaq rocketing up 1.46 percent. As we got some good news about a potential deal to avoid another government shutdown and the possibility of some high-level talks with China. It is amazing to me how fast this pendulum swings from optimism to pessimism and back again, without any apparent irony or skepticism even. Frankly, the manic depressive nature of this market it's terrific. It's terrible. It's going to soar. It's going to crash. It's downright unnerving. And that's from a guy who's had a lot of experience with genuine mood swings. But there's method to the market's madness, and we're going to talk about that tonight because we got to put it in context. The action is so extreme because this is an incredibly binary moment, people. When we look at the world through the prism of hope, the future seems so pretty bright. When we look through the prism of gloom, the future just seems, like, just incredibly awful. Normally, there's not that much difference between the glass half-full scenario and the glass half-empty scenario. But right now, I, they're separated by a vast gulf. I mean... It is incredible. Let me give you the clearest example, because it's something I've been puzzling over ever since uh, Carl Kintini asked me about it yesterday on Squawk on the Street. Yesterday, Morgan Stanley's equity chief, Mike Wilson, issued an extraordinary prophecy. He said, we are increasingly convinced that consensus earnings estimates for 2019 have further to fall and that the optimistic uptick currently baked into the fourth quarter 2019 estimates is unlikely. He then goes on to say, a modest further decline in earnings will deliver the earnings recession we call for. Earnings recession? <laughs> an earnings recession? Oh, geez, that is brutal. While Wilson thinks this market can still go higher, i got to tell you that an earnings recession, I believe, would crush the averages. Now, this is not my view. In fact, if anyone else predicted this, I'd call it downright ludicrous. But Mike Wilson's not just anyone. Of all the Wall Street strategies CNBC tracked in 2018, this guy Wilson was the most accurate. I mean, he's the most bankable, and he's called for an earnings recession. Here's the issue. If the trade war with China keeps escalating, the Chinese economy goes into recession and spreads to the rest of the world, Wilson may very well be right. On the other hand, if we get a deal with China that ignites both of our economies, I bet it'll be very wrong. And the earnings this year, I think, could be up. I think the latter possibility is more likely. But both scenarios... Uh, What if I could dismiss this guy Wilson as not knowing what the heck he's talking about? He was the winner. Speaking of China, we've been uh, over the two camps in the Trump White House, but it's worth it to refresh the trade warriors, the cold warriors. The trade warriors, led by Larry Kudlow and Steve Mnuchin, are focused on doing more business with China. They just want to level the playing field for American companies. The cold warriors, led by Peter Navarro and Robert Lighthouser, he's the head trade negotiator, care less about trade, actually more about preventing the People's Republic from becoming a rival superpower. The 2025 plan. They want China to stop stealing our intellectual property and stop destroying what's left of our industrial base. And if that means we need to keep these tariffs on forever or even raise them, they're not going to shed any tears. They don't want us to fund Chinese supremacy with our trade dollars. The problem? It's the president. We don't know what camp President Trump favors. I mean, today he hinted, he hinted, and it sent things to China, He hinted that there could be a deal in the offing, the upcoming talks, that they'll be fruitful. And you know what? As soon as I heard that, what I said was, bye, bye, bye. Uh, but then he says, wait a second. Those tariffs are still going to go from 10% to 25% next month. Sell, 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 sell. The market's confused because the situation is genuinely confusing. But the last thing he said was pretty positive, And there you go. Then there's the bizarre oppositional thinking about oil, which you know is driving me crazy. When oil bounces, even though that's bad for the economy, right? when it bounces up, it pulls the stock market higher and vice versa. The Dow Jones Industrial Average went down for four straight days, almost totally in sync with the price of crude, which led it down, by the way, people. I'm, I do this minute by minute. Most people view oil as the best barometer of worldwide commerce. Today, though, oil screams higher. Demand is back in China. A China deal could be fantastic for, for global growth. Frankly, I think we shouldn't be taking our cue from crude at all, because the real issue is burgeoning supply from the Permian in Texas. But nobody seems to care. I'm just a TV host. All right, we got a gigantic budget deficit, right? I mean, do we all stipulate that? Can we just agree? Yet interest rates have fallen dramatically. Now that is not supposed to happen. In theory, a huge deficit should translate into higher rates. Always has, and uh, thus lower stock prices. Always has. But nope. All right, get this. Break down individual sectors. If the economy is as strong as the bulls say, interest rates and bank lending really should be skyrocketing, taking the bank stocks with them. But the financials have been some of the worst performers in the market, even after that big merger between SunTrust and BB&T. I cannot remember a time in my history when the bank stocks have been this cheap on an earnings basis. And that is crazy. Especially since bad loans is a percentage of capital loss I've ever seen. That's not supposed to happen. For five years, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google, now Alphabet, has led tech higher, right? Let's stipulate that, too. Now you can't seem to give these stocks away. They almost always reverse midday. But the cloud plays the Salesforce, Coupa, ServiceNow, Splunk. Off to the races. It gets worse. You can have situations like electronic arts. One day, the video game maker gives you the worst quarter imaginable, and the stock gets crushed. The very next day, the very next day, EA puts out a new game, Apex Legends. And within the week, it's got 25 million players. Maybe it's the greatest hit in the history of video games. Since the stock to stratosphere. It's not done going higher. This paradoxical action can even play out in the same day. This morning, Under Armour, Kevin Plank's company, reported a quarter that initially didn't get much love. The stock is rallying 60 cents before drifting to the red. Then the details came out. And the management talked about how inventories were down 12% last time when the stock went down, the inventories were ballooning. So the stock then exploded higher, finished up nearly 7%. And you know what it did? It propelled the rest of the cohort that is retail higher. This one stock, Under Armour, it did that. So how do all these contradictions resolve themselves? I don't know. But I can give you some touchstones to help you navigate your way through these confusing waters, give you some context that you can make money off of it. I'm going to give you Kramer's fundamental tenets, as a matter of fact. First, I've been taught by the greatest pros on Earth, including the legendary late Marty Zweig. That as long as you're not fighting the Fed, you should be buying stocks. When the Fed switched directions and decided to be more worried about a recession than inflation, they stopped fighting you. Green light. Second, oh, man, I'm going there. I'm just saying it. We have a president who fundamentally wants the stock market to go higher. I believe in Trump's willingness to change his mind to help the stock market. When the Fed chief was dead wrong in calling for multiple rate hikes, Trump called him out on it. Remember how everybody was furious at Trump, not, not Powell? Powell was getting it wrong. Trump was getting it right. They're furious at Trump. Trump was right. Now, the president's not omnipotent, but if the market starts to get slammed, it helps to have a commander-in-chief who's willing to change policy to get the averages moving higher again if you own stocks. Hey, if you your shorty's a nightmare. Third, there's no inflation to speak of, even though the economy's still growing. When you have growth without inflation, you, you, you're supposed to buy stocks, not sell. The handbook says that. Fourth, corporate balance sheets are as strong as, ever, uh, as I've ever seen. Why does this matter? When balance sheets are strong, the stocks of those companies have a greater likelihood of bouncing back than in other times when the balance sheets are weak. Finally, stocks simply aren't expensive historically. I went over this yesterday with, with my friend Stephanie Link. But sure, look, if Mike Wilson... If Mr. Wilson at Morgan Stanley is right about an earnings recession, then stocks could put to be more expensive than they seem. But if we get a trade deal, interest rates remain low, Fed stays on the sidelines, then I bet we'll get a bunch of upside surprises. Stocks will seem, in retrospect, cheap. The bottom line, this market keeps seesawing because we're in a very binary moment where the glass half empty scenario is generally much worse than the glass half full scenario. But I think the facts favor the more hopeful view right now. So it's worth staying in this market as long as you recognize that if the trade talks break down... And we're going to get a decent decline ahead. All right, let's go to Adam in Florida. Adam!
1: Yay. Hey, hey, Jim, how are you? Big booha from North Florida.
0: No, I love North Florida. I lived in the Panhandle myself.
1: Kindred! Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, listen, ATT, have it for a while. That's okay. Has a great dividend. It's about 28 today. And I see Sprint filed a lawsuit about the 5G rollout. Should I be concerned, or are they just trying to jump on the bandwagon? Uh, A little bandwagon jumping, but let's
0: understand each other. Let's get on the same page. You are reaching to get that yield. Why not take a little bit less yield and own Verizon? I don't like to reach. In other words, if I'm concerned about a yield being safe, I just say, because that's not why I like yield. I like yield as kind of about of a safety business. Chad in Tennessee. Chad. Booyah, from Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. Lookout Mountain, Chapman and Mim. It is want so your beautiful. Lookout Mountain is so stuff. beautiful, sir. I'm sorry. I just love it there. Go ahead. No, that, that's okay. Thank you. Rock, Rock City is the best place, one of the best places in the world. Thank you. My, sure. my children, Chapman and Mim, want your opinion on our favorite stop.
1: What do you think of Blackstone ticker BX? Holy Stockton cow! KKR is considering changing from a partnership to a C corporation, as KKR and Aries did. The market review KKR
2: and
0: Aries. Holy Chris cow.
1: She's up to a 50% increase in share price with this change. Their goal of a 50% increase in fee related
0: earnings should also act as a tailwind. Oh my god, that's, that's our, our family, family in Tennessee. An eight-year-old and a nine-year. Can you believe this? And I like the analysis. I got to tell you, both kids got horse sense. Families watching together. Kids starting early. Mad Money Magic. I like Blackstone. Hey, you got that fella, Steven Schwartz because on TV, he always sounds like a real smart fella. And the fact is he's from Abington, which is the neighboring school district, and he's pretty, good, pretty darn good guy. Thank you, Jeff Sonnenfeld, for making me know that. And I think that Blackstone's the buy, and I think your kids are plenty smart. All right, to me, the facts of this market seem to point to staying the course. But you gotta be comfortable with the wide gulf between the prism of gloom and the prism of hope. Right now it's bigger than I could ever recall. Man money tonight. E-commerce sales over the holidays. Get this. Reached new heights in 2018, pulling in 126 billion, but I'm talking to one company that could profit from the trend mightily, and it ain't Amazon. Don't miss my sit-down with Spotify after Earnings. I even told, well, I even told David Faber that Spotify, no, Shopify. I told David Faber. I told David Faber that the national nightmare for him would be Shopify because he hates to shop. His nightmare is my dream. Now, the market's roaring back. Have we become too optimistic? I'm going to go off the charts, to find out. And after a tough end of the year, many investors circle back to the REITs. But well, with the bull market back in action, at least today, has the money been made in the group? And there's some Twitter guys telling me it's not safe. I say it is safe, and this isn't the marathon, man. Let's sit down with the CEO of Entos to find out what's ahead. So stay with Kramer!
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag MadTweaks. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. Or give us a call at one 800 743 cnbc Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: At Fidelity, we work to get you a better price for every trade. See how much we saved investors last year at Fidelity.com slash priceimprovement. Fidelity Brokered Services, member NYSE, SIPC. This is one of the most exciting companies we've had on mad money since we started. When you look at retailers that shot the lights out this earning season, what's the one thing they have in common? They all have a strong direct-to-consumer we call DTC business. And the best way to reach your customers directly is by selling them stuff online. Which brings me to Shopify, and the symbol is shop for all you home gamers, a cloud-based software company that gives merchants the tools they need to compete on the Internet. Their platform can help you set up an online store and then handle everything from digital marketing to payments to shipping. Shopify actually got its start as a web-based snowboard store, but the founders were so disappointed with the existing e-commerce software tools that they decided to create their own. Then they started selling those tools to other small and medium-sized businesses. Now Shopify This stock—it's just one incredible performer. K. Public at seventeen bucks. Listen, it's twenty fifteen. Now it trades at one hundred seventy-five—a move that includes a twenty-seven percent gain for the year. This morning, Shopify reported a terrific quarter, and then initially the stock sold off. At one point it was down like 12 bucks. What the heck? Then it rebounded and closed up a couple of bucks in the uh, end of the day. I think the quarter would have been much better received if the stock hadn't run so much going into it. The company delivered a $0.06 cent earnings beat off a $0.20 cent basis with higher-than-expected sales up a staggering 54% year-over-year. Year. The problem? Shopify gave inline guidance for the next quarter in the full year, when some investors were hoping for a more spectacularly bullish forecast. The next time it sells off... You might want to do some buy, but don't take it from me. Let's check in with Harley Finkelstein, Shopify's chief operating officer. hear more about this incredible company, The Quarter, and where it's headed. Mr. Finkelstein, welcome to Mad Money.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: All right, we're going to start with a tweet because it's just too priceless. This is from Empowered Millennial Investor, who says, If Shopify was based out of Silicon Valley... Valley. It would be called FANGS with the S being you and talked about every day on CNBC. Harley is a force of nature. Make Ottawa proud tonight, Harley. I want you to just dissect that for our viewers who have not heard of your amazing company.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, we're a, a Canadian based company, so maybe a little bit of modesty up here uh, <laughs> carries over there. But uh, we're really happy with, with how things ended, how we ended the year, and, 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 and certainly the quarter was great, and we're really excited about our future.
0: Well, you have more than 820,000 customers. You were the fastest to get to a billion. This is a rem- I understand your humility, sir, but Shopify is indeed a force of retail.
1: Yeah, thank you for saying that. We've been at this now for almost 14 years. And uh, as, as you mentioned, we've grown, from, uh, grown to 820,000 merchants, up from 600,000 merchants a year ago. And uh, we have you know, a big top of funnel with brand new entrepreneurs getting started on Shopify for the very first time. And uh, we also have some very large brands like the big CPGs and some big DTs, direct-to-consumer companies all using Shopify to scale their businesses. And uh, we got a really great business model, and, and it's, it's, we're having a lot of fun. Right.
0: I want people to know that means a, a company like a Budweiser, a, a Nestle, a P&G, a Red Bull, a Tesla. But I tell you, a lot of our viewers are completely crazed. By uh, the person who made almost a billion dollars on Shopify, Kylie Jenner, you Mm -hmm. basically made her a she is a, a one person mall
1: online. It's amazing. I think the Kylie story was surprising to a lot of people, but not for us, because, I mean, we see so many stories like that all the time. You know, whether it's Kanye West launching his Yeezy store on Shopify or Drake's store or, frankly, Tom Brady's new store, we see every, uh, all these major, uh, brands and huge influencers using Shopify to create authentic products and sell it to the audience. And I always sort of think back to, you know, if, if DTC and direct to consumer was around when Michael Jordan was, was creating the, the Jordan Brown with Nike, I think Nike would be a supplier, and Michael Jordan would be the brand. He would own the entirety of his business, as opposed to uh, getting a licensing fee. And so, we're really excited about this. But even if you go beyond just Kylie, you look at companies like Bombas and Allbirds and Tommy John and Fashion Nova. These are brands that didn't exist five, ten years ago, and they're they're absolutely doing incredible numbers on Shopify, and with with no uh, with no slowing down in mind. Well, Harley, there would be someone out there who's watching
0: right now. It's got a great idea. They start to do well. And you are about empowerment. Tell us about merchant funding.
1: Yeah, so a couple things. So you got to remember, Shopify was built to help anyone that has an idea start a great business and sell to a global audience. So we really do bend the learning curve to make it really easy to get started. And the ones that succeed, not all of them do, but the ones that do succeed, they grow really, really large with us. And over time, we want to provide them with more services, more solutions. So, for example, uh, we launched Shopify Payments a couple years ago, uh, where we went to the payments companies and negotiated rates on their behalf. We launched Shopify Shipping, where we went into the payments companies and, and once, uh, the shipping companies and negotiated shipping costs. On their behalf. So we always are trying to find economies of scale to help democratize the entire business process for these small businesses. And more recently, we realized that a lot of these small businesses, they also need capital. And because we have so much information on them, we're able to make really quick and very effective underwriting decisions. And so we were able to go and offer them capital uh, cash advances. And we've given out hundreds of millions of dollars of cash advances to a lot of these small businesses who, if it wasn't for Shopify, would not be able to get this money on their own.
0: Well, I think this is an amazing story. Now, I live in Brooklyn, about a mile from Etsy. Could you distinguish what, I mean, obviously there's room for everybody, but what's the difference between Etsy and
1: Shopify? Yeah, I mean, Etsy fundamentally is a marketplace. Etsy is a place where uh, someone who makes a product can go to find an audience. But our feeling is that, you know, for an entrepreneur, they don't always want to rent the audience. They they want to own the audience. They want to have a direct relationship with their customers. They want to own the entire profit margin. They want to be able to sell and have uh, have long-term relationships with the people that are buying their products. And so companies like Etsy, you know, do a really good job of curating a bunch of products and and, and renting those customers to those makers. Uh, And we, we think the marketplace are really great, but we think fundamentally, ultimately, makers and entrepreneurs and merchants, they want to have a direct relationship with the people buying their products. Products And so uh, one of the things that, that uh, is not well known about Shopify, but one way to think about what we do is we're really this retail operating system where merchants can start a store with us very easily and they can build a beautiful online store, but they can also cross sell to different marketplaces like eBay or Amazon. But the idea is that it feeds all feeds back into one centralized back office, which is Shopify. And that's where they can run the entirety of their business. And really, the idea is, let's become the most important piece of software they use on a daily basis. The first thing they open every morning, the last thing they close every night. And so obviously, Marketplace will play a role there, but ultimately, merchants want to find customers wherever those customers exist, and more and more, they want to sell direct to those customers. Oh, i
0: got to believe Now, The one last question. Uh, You guys are very uh, forward-thinking. I think there's a market that's going to be disrupted worth $250 billion in consumer products, and I think that's the cannabis market. That's how uh, big I think it is. You're not holding back. You're
1: right there with Canadian Cannabis, aren't you? Yeah, so uh, obviously the reason we started with Canada was there was clarity in Canada. Right. The Canadian government, the legislator, they were very clear on how they were going to roll out uh, the, the commercialization and, and, and the legalization of cannabis sales uh, on the consumer side. And we felt it was really important for us to act quickly and, 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 and effectively to not only win as much of the Canadian market as, as we possibly could, uh, but also to show uh, the rest of the world as they begin to think about cannabis sales that we are the first phone call that they should be making. And so whether it's the province of Ontario or British Columbia, right or most of the largest licensed producers like Canopy in Canada Uh, Shopify is what's powering those retail sales and we think that we can do a great job uh, helping other countries and other regions do the same thing well
0: congratulations for what you've done for all of the merchants more than 820,000 and for all the shareholders that's Harley Finkelstein yes if he were in Silicon Valley maybe it would be the S and fangs but I like the fact he's up in Ottawa what a story money's back after the break Exactly one week before the stock market bottomed December 26th, we spoke to Carly Garner, and she's a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of DeCarly Trading, the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading, and she writes with me at realmoney.com, where I blog. She told us the pessimism was peaking. In other words, Garner pretty much called the bottom, arguing that we could soon be due for a dramatic rebound. Since then, boy, I mean, could you be more right? After one last horrible downdraft over the following week, the average has reversed, and they've been working their way higher ever since, including today's phenomenal run, driven by some optimism about China, as well as possible deal to prevent another government shutdown, and yes, some vicious short covering from bears, who have been laying on this market. Now that the market's come roaring back, though, well, we got to ask ourselves another question. In late December, Garner saw the bottom coming because she realized that investors had gotten too negative, too pessimistic. So after this monster move, then we have to ask ourselves have we gotten too optimistic? See, this, the stock market is kind of like a pendulum. OK, constantly swinging back and forth. And Garner believes that the pendulum almost always overshoots all movements go too far. In December, we overshot to the downside since the intraday lows on the day after Christmas. The S&P 500 has, has rallied an astounding 17 percent. Does that mean we're now approaching irrational exuberance territory? Tonight, we're going off the charts to answer that exact question with the help of Carly Garner. And at least for now, her answer is simple. We don't have too much optimism. We don't have too much optimism. And, for example, she's going to use this thing called distort. She's got a bunch of really good indicators. The CNN Fear and Greed Index, which relies on a variety of different inputs to measure, well, uh, how about fear and greed, currently stands at 68 out of 100. To her, that suggests the market with a, mo- a moderate amount of greed built in, moderate. That's a far cry from the extreme levels where you need to start worrying. Too much greed? Toxic. It contains the seeds of its own destruction. When everyone is feeling bullish, that means there's no one left to buy stocks. If you want the market to keep climbing, you need some bears and some fence-sitters who can change their minds to provide fuel for the rally. And the flip side is also true. That's why Garner's peak pessimism call worked so well in December. At the lows, we basically ran out of potential sellers. Look at this, how obvious this is. You know, I mean, it is, right? And now, so if it were up here, we'd be a little more concerned. But it's not. So too much pessimism can kill a decline, and too much optimism can kill a rally. But how much is too much? Well, when the averages peaked going to the fourth quarter of last year, the CNN Fear and Greed Index stood at 90 Wow. OK, 90. I mean, that is amazing how outrageous. Look at all these tops. OK, Garner points out that we usually don't peak until we hit 90 or above. Just take a look at this chart of the CNN Fear and Greed Index going back to 2016. There are a few times where it peaks in the 60s or 70s, where we are now. But most of the major reversals, I mean, major, right, the big dancers uh, uh, from greed to fear have started substantially higher levels. And you can see, I mean, this is just it's kind of open and shut when you think about it. What else? All right. As of yesterday, only 50 percent of professional traders and investors pulled by the Consensus Bullish Index were actively feeling bullish. Again, to garner that means we've still got plenty of bears and fencers who can be converted into bulls, adding fuel to the fire, which is something that I think really did help drive today's run. Then there's the yes, no, CBO, you guys, we cover this a lot, I don't care. More to go here. Volatility index, or the VIX for short, measures the implied volatility of the S&P 500 options market. Many investors use it as a proxy for fearful sentiment. Check out the VIX's weekly chart going back to 2014, okay? Right now, the volatility index is hovering at around 15. After dramatic spike up to 36 in December. Well, well this was obscene, right? I mean, come on. I mean, it's just kind of nuts. Historically, when the stock market's in recovery mode after a big down the VIX tends to retreat down to the 10 to 12 area. Well, we're not there. Garner's betting that the volatility index will continue to work its way lower from here until the S&P keeps grinding higher, at least for now. Uh, At least for, and we don't know how long, okay? Based on what we've seen in the past, she thinks it would be very unusual to get a rebound in the VIX from these levels. And since the stock market tends to go up when the VIX goes down, that's good news. So we got this this little bit of area, but that's going to be a nice gain if we get there, okay? On top of that, Garner likes to examine seasonal cycles. And this is another really important thing because we're just coming out of a bad one, all right? Seasonal cycles, and she's using the Stock Traders' Almanac, we're currently in the best six months of the year for the market. Historically, that's the period between November 1st and April 30th. Garner notes that February is usually the weak length during this stretch, but these seasonal patterns tell her that the S&P has a habit of moving higher from mid-February, where we are right now, through mid-March. So, you know what, we're kind of of out of the woods. Maybe you shouldn't even wait any longer. How about the averages themselves? Let's start with the weekly chart of the S&P 500. First off, the S&P is facing a ceiling of resistance near 27.30. All right, so you can see where we are. Uh, We're currently above that level, and if we finish the week up here, we'll have cleared this hurdle. Meanwhile, take a look at the Relative Strength Index. That's the RSI, an important momentum indicator that's currently in pretty neutral mode. Again, we don't want to see it to an extreme to be too bullish. You'd expect the RSI to be higher if we were reaching excessive levels of optimism, right? Same goes for the slow stochastic oscillator. This is another important tool that helps technicians figure out when a security has gotten overbought or oversold. So let's take a look at that. No, not really, right? Stochastics still have room to run. They haven't yet crossed into overbought territory, which would signal that the markets come up too far too fast even if the S&P 500 keeps climbing to, say, I don't know, let's say 2,800, okay, up 2% from here, Garner doesn't anticipate either the RSI or the slow stochastic will hit extreme overbought levels. Now, if we can clear the ceiling of resistance to 2,800, she says there could be a nice run to 3,000, provided we get some kind of trade ceasefire with China. You need an event like that. Of course, if Garner's wrong, if the S&P 500 does break down from here, we're going to have a floor support at 2,600, which is down more than 5% for these levels. If that floor fails to hold, Garner says the S&P could cascade all the way down to 2,400. You know know how technicians work. If it goes the other way, it does lead to consequences. It does not lead to a buying opportunity necessarily. But she does think that this decline is very unlikely. And if we do get such a dramatic pullback, she actually says it would be a great place to do some buying. All right, now why don't we zoom out and look at the S&P 500's monthly chart. To garner this picture, is telling a very similar story. For years, ever since the financial crisis, the S&P has been trading uh, a higher channel, a fairly wide channel. Pretty defined, right? When we peaked in September, we hit the high end of that channel. And when we bought in December, we ended up bouncing off the low end of the channel. So there you go. Right now, the S&P is in the middle. That's also good. Uh, you got a ceiling of resistance at $2,800. All right, there we go. Uh, and another hurdle at 2940 uh, But the hard ceiling is 3000 I And mean, This is, you know, is going to be tough to do. That's perfect. Um, just like we saw uh, on the weekly chart. Meanwhile, if we get a brutal sell-off, the hard floor is around 2428 So with the, G- the S&P in the 2700s, Garner says we're basically in equilibrium. Uh, that's right. Again, the signs suggest that this market can have more upside before the rally exhausts itself. The relative strength index on in the monthly chart is currently neutral. All right, we don't mind that. Uh, and headed higher to Garner, uh, to Garner, that means going higher is the path of least resistance for the S&P 500. That's what we want. Eventually, the market will become too optimistic and stocks will peak, but we're not there yet. Once the S&P climbs to 2,800, perhaps maybe to the mid-2,900s, that's where Garner expects things will turn south and the pendulum will start swinging in the opposite direction. So let me give you the bottom line. Remember, this person, Carly Garner, has been dead right. And the charts, as interpreted by Carly, suggest that this market still has some more upside here. But if we get a few more days like this wild one, she thinks we'll need to start worrying about irrational exuberance. For now, though, she thinks we are headed higher. And I agree. Let's go to Riley in Georgia. Riley. Jim, booyah. Booyah. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I was going to let you know I work for the fire department here in Georgia, and
2: uh, every night we watch your show at the station, hoping we don't get a call. So thank you. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you today without, without a call coming in. Thank you. No, um, so thank you. Um, uh, with the market going up as it did today, do you still think now is a good time to put gold in your portfolio, or should we wait till gold comes down?
0: I do think gold is right here. Uh, look, the dollar's been strong for a little, while, for a, a little bit of a streak. It's going to start coming down. I want gold for insurance. I know I always hope insurance doesn't pay off, but that's okay. Sometimes you got to do a hedge, and gold is a great hedge. All right, according to tonight's Chartist, this market has room for more upside, and it's right here. <laughs> a, you know, a few more rallies, and then we could be you know, facing some irrational exuberance, but not yet. Much more made money at, including my exclusive with Ventas. Could the company continue to offer healthy returns? I know a lot of people are skeptical. Let's check it out. Then I hate to burst your bubble, but I'm telling you why the alleged boom in the stock market has nothing to do with the Fed and all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. And a market that's suddenly gotten a lot more upbeat. What do we do with the safety stocks, like the Real Estate Investment Trust? Take Ventas, a well-run healthcare REIT that owns senior housing facilities, medical office buildings, hospitals, and research labs across North America and the UK. That's a nice, consistent business, and the stock also protects you with a juicy 5% yield. Plus, we know Ventas is doing well because the company reported a strong quarter just last week. However, as we saw today, this is not the kind of stock people get more excited about as the global economy improves. On the other hand, if you're skeptical about President Trump's ability or his willingness to strike a deal with the Chinese, well, then the REITs could come roaring back the moment one of the hardliners in the administration leaks something negative about the negotiations. That's been going on forever, right? Think of Ventos' insurance against the possibility of anything that might cause a further economic slowdown. Now, last night, we got a chance to speak with Deb Cafaro, the terrific chairman and CEO of Ventos, and I thought she told a compelling story. So take a look. Deb, Ventas has done amazingly, and yet I know you've been worried about the growth. You're talking about a pivot year back to growth right now. How can it happen?
2: Oh, there are four building blocks for Ventas' pivot back to growth. Mm -hmm. Senior housing is going to have a powerful upside and add to our other asset growth that Mm -hmm. we have had all along. We're going to use our balance sheet strength. We're going to go back to being an external growth machine. And those are really three of the key areas. But how do we know? I mean, look, I, I know your private pay, and that's the best. Mm-hmm. But how do you know a lot of these,
0: you know, the federal government doesn't stop. You know, let's say they cut back on, mm-hmm. on helping the non-private pay, and maybe the states cut back. Aren't a lot of the other guys going to go out of business?
2: Well, we are private pay, and and obviously we have the big new research and innovation business. Right. that's the fourth building block of our. And I just worry that growth. the ones that aren't good like you could drag you down. In the private pay business. No, we're not in the public. Right. Well, our business is principally private pay, as we've talked they about. What if go up those people and then they send it back into private? Or is that not the way it works? That that's not the way okay. it works. Okay. I mean, good. if you if you look at the private pay businesses that we're in. They are thriving. When you look at senior housing, for example, the, the average net worth of an over 80 is over a million dollars. Really? Yes, it is. Wow. And so when you look at Ooh. our average move-in age and you look at the average length of stay and the cost in the senior living community, there's very significant net worth and resources for seniors, even without the support of their children to live comfortably oh, and God. happily in I our senior I didn't know that much. I do know that your yes. demographic
0: figures, the, what, the fastest cohort in the country is the
2: 75 to 81? It is. It's growing. It's, it's unbelievable. Is it's it growing is? 4% a year for each of the next five years. And even the 82 to 86 will start growing 3% a year starting in 2020. So we have great demographic demand.
0: Okay, uh, there's a fight going on in New York right now over what I think may be one of the greatest things ever for research. Uh, which is the Amazon headquarters. Mm-hmm. Could you tell people the kind of compound growth you can get in that industry that you're investing in?
2: Yes. Well, we are doing a very particular kind of research and innovation business. We're doing it with the leading universities in the United States, where they are developing cures for illnesses and chronic conditions. And it's very exciting, groundbreaking work that's being done in our buildings. And the... Uh, Growth has been incredible. A couple billion dollars have been added to NIH funding. There's a tremendous amount of private money being invested in these critical cures. And the universities are really leading the way. And so that's been an exciting business for us. We have a billion and a half pipeline that we're adding uh, in development to that business. And the universities are really gung-ho about... This research business,
0: and how about the the medical office building?
2: Okay, the medical office building is steady, Eddie. Okay, that's that's really how you should think about it. Again, it's demographically driven. People over sixty five go to the doctor at least ten times a year. Outpatient businesses are increasing because they're a lower cost setting, and we are one of the leading owners of that business. So, there you should be looking for steady inflationary-like increases every year in net operating income. No,
0: do we have to worry? I mean, for instance, uh, here's an alpha BMO says, Ventos provided underwhelming 2019 guidance. They're worried about your compound right? This is what I keep, you know, I'm just afraid that they will overbuild again. I, you know, this is, all this is about the glut that you told us would be worked off. And just, I am concerned because people say, Jim, you love this Ventos. Don't you see they're building all these places that it could just all come back to haunt them? Well,
2: thank you so much. And we have Talked about this before, and I want to be really clear about what's happening, and that is that starts in senior living have continued to decline and therefore improve the most ever in the fourth quarter. So we're at the lowest level since. 2012 in starts, but as we've talked about before, we are working our way through the starts that began a couple years ago in anticipation of the demographic demand, Mm -hmm. and we continue to have to work our way through those starts, but there is a powerful upside as we see the growth in seniors coupled with this improvement in starts, which continues to tick downward, which is in our favor.
0: Okay, are you seeing opportunities to buy? You've refinanced that balance sheet so you can grow. We do.
2: We do have a great balance sheet. That's one of our good characteristics, and that's an asset for us as we may want to turn on the acquisition machine, right? and uh, we do see opportunities for external growth, and that's one of the ways of the pivot year back to growth for venture. So
0: you are using the term you were saying is there's a powerful cyclical upside coming, so people should stay in, which you know I support you endlessly because it's been so great during the downturn. I can't wait to see what it'll be like during the upturn.
2: Well, thank you. We have 23% compound annual return. We have a 5% dividend yield, great balance sheet, great demand-driven business, and you have not been wrong, sticking I with us. I know I haven't, because so we'll I backed you the every, whole way. We will do everything we right. can to keep that track record
0: And you and came going. on during the short sellers who were after you, and they were wrong, and that's why I had to ask about all these, well, how about if these yes. other guys go out of business? Because yes. that's the new thing. You know, they always come up with something, and they're yes. always wrong, Deb, and you've been right consistently.
2: Well, we'll keep at it. Okay, Thank, thank, you, thank you so, so much, much for
0: coming show. on the show. That's De- Deborah Kafaro And Deb, De- De- this, this Ventas. you know I have a VTR. I've liked it the whole way. She's the CEO, and and I, I want to double down on it for what she just said. Man, money's back in the break. It is time! It's time for the lightning round. What's about, Of course, one of these. Hey, this is not to bye bye just the corner, you know, and play the sound. And then the lightning round's over. Are you ready? Skate Dad, Time for the lightning round. We're going to start with Patty in Ohio. Patty!
2: Hey, Jim. Hey, happy belated birthday. Oh, uh,
0: you're too kind. Thank you so much.
2: Uh, and you're, I just, you've been so good to me all these years. I've been watching you since Kudlow. Wow. So, um, hey, he's like, now uh, <laughs> the
0: dove in the trade fight. What's going on? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm looking at Baidu right here. What do you think? No, no, we're going to recommend only Alibaba. We've added that just because we feel like that the trade camp is going to get a deal. But that's the only one we're going to do because we're very, very strong in the fundamentals here. How about we go to Clay in Montana? Clay. Hi, Jim. Good job. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Clay. Should I buy, should I buy more Domino's pizza before the earnings, or what's your thought? I think the quarter's going to be okay. I, I like the stock. I think Rich Allison's doing a real good job. I'm sticking with Domino's. I need, it, the category's not that, uh, bun, uh, you know, flamboyant. It's not doing that well, but hey, listen. They're taking some share from, from uh, another competitor. I don't need to name. How about Phil in Illinois? Phil! Hey, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, Phil. My question's about Synopsys. It's had a good run the last six weeks. Yeah, it's a thing. good company. It's design automation. Let me throw... I'll give you a 2 for I'll also throw an Autodesk. I like that one, too. These are very strong stocks. Let's go to Mark in Virginia. Mark. Hey. Hey, Jim. How are you doing today? I'm doing Hi, well, guys. Mark. How about you? I am doing fantastic. I have a critical mass booya for Jim Kramer. Um, on February 18th, TransOcean reports is it a projected 24 cent loss or is there an upside surprise? That's you know what? Question. I got to tell you, I don't like offshore drilling. It's just been a real loser. Uh, if you want to own an offshore drilling, you might as well go be in. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm going to say it, it's owned by my travel trust, SlumberJay, and I never thought SlumberJay would sink as low as it did. There, I own that like to talk about my mistakes because that's what you can learn from how about craig in new york craig i'm up 21 percent on market access
2: holdings what is your recommendation
0: you know we liked mcfay when he was on we're not going to cash out up 21 percent more upside i need to go to heath in colorado he
1: jim a big booyah from highland branch colorado how you
0: doing i am doing well highland branch don't know it that well but it sounds great <laughs> Sounds good. Hey, thoughts and short term opinion on LITE mm-hmm. Lumentum? Oh, Lumentum is a short term trader. It's too much of a trading vehicle, too hard for this guy. I'm going to have to take a pass on it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, this is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
2: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
0: Listen to me. Can we please stop taking people seriously when they say things like we're in a Fed-induced bubble? I hate this nonsense. And the catcallers who fill my Twitter feed with this claptrap, I say, Look, if you honestly believe that we're in a Fed-induced bubble, then we've been in one since Ben Fran- Bernanke started cutting rates after he destroyed the economy with his excessive rate hikes that drove us, off, drove us off the cliff into the Great Recession. That's not a bubble. It's the Federal Reserve doing its job. Listen, I don't think our current Fed chief, Jay Powell, cares about the stock market much at all. He does worry about Main Street, but until last month, he was concerned about protecting Main Street from the wrong thing. Inflation, not deflation. That was a mistake. When Powell was talking about tightening three more times in 2019, the December Consumer Price Index actually went negative. (laughs) I can't stress this point enough. When people talk about a Fed-induced bubble, they mean the Fed should be out there tightening aggressively and laying waste to the economy. At the beginning of October, when Jay Powell laid out a very hawkish agenda, we were on the verge of a Fed-mandated recession. The stock market crashed in the fourth quarter. Yes, it crashed because recessions are bad for business. Then Powell realized there was no need to tighten. He put the Fed-mandated recession on hold and stocks came roaring back up 17%. That's not a bubble. It's business as usual. Why is this so important? Because a growing economy is a good thing. I can't believe I even have to make this argument. But why would anyone want the Fed to start a recession for no reason? If we can have a healthy economy fueled by the corporate tax cuts with benign inflation, why wouldn't we want that? Do we need a strong economy so we can tighten, then slow the economy so we can lower rates? Does a team winning in the first quarter want to start losing in the second quarter so it can make a comeback in the third quarter and win in the fourth quarter? No. Winning is an, is an economy that grows as much as it can without spurring inflation. Yet I can't tell you how many hedge fund managers over the years have been struck by the idea that interest rates should be much, much higher. They want rates to go up higher, and they're angry that the Fed won't let it happen. I think that's also a laughable argument. Look, our long-term rates should probably be higher, right? The Fed budget deficit has exploded. I think it's going to be a huge problem down the line. No, I'm stipulating it. In theory, when the government borrows a fortune, long-term treasury yields are supposed to go higher. You borrow a lot, and you need to pay a higher interest rate. It just hasn't happened, that's all. Why? Well, I don't know. It's not the Fed's fault. The Fed only sets short-term rates. Our long rates have stayed low because they're still much higher than the long rates in Europe and Japan, which entices foreign investors into buying our bonds, and that pushes down their yields. Plus, we've seen a dramatic decline in corporate bond issuance, down 19% in the fourth quarter. That leaves fixed-income investors with no choice but to plow into U.S. treasuries. There are some powerful forces. They, these, these, these can make rates change. Now, the Chinese, by the way, you keep hearing that they're big treasury holders. Do you know that they've liquidated U.S. treasuries en masse? They they own 14 percent of our bonds in 2011. Now they only own 7 percent, according to The Wall Street Journal. Yet that, that just hasn't seemed to have much of an impact. That's incredible. Still, this influx of foreign money pushing down long term interest rates is no reason for the Fed to tighten. Those aren't the rates the Fed controls. So let's do this. Let's take this idea of a Fed induced bubble off the table. We have an economic expansion that's been fueled in part by lower taxes. That's a good thing. In reality, we had a genuine Fed induced bear market back in December. Uh, that was a bad thing. That was fueled by J.Pal's bad judgment. That was bad, and that's why I think we should question the sanity of anyone who desperately wants the Fed to tighten. They're either crazy, or they genuinely want stocks to go lower because they have way too many short positions on, and they're lagging the S and P 500. Stick with it. I've got to circle back to two items because I think they're really important. First, Under Armour. I think it's the beginning of the next leg of the run. I think that these guys have really gotten it together. When I see that low inventory and I see them under-promising, I think they over-deliver. Second, let's talk about this Shopify for a second. You know what, if it orders in Silicon Valley, I think it would be triple the price. Do I just make that up? No, this company has genuine momentum. And I have to tell you, I'm a sucker for companies that empower people like you and me to be able to aspire to do far greater things than we otherwise would they have inspired 820,000 different merchants to be something they probably never could have been otherwise. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise i to find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer and I will see you tomorrow!
1: At Fidelity, online U.S. stock and ETF trades are commission free zero dollar commission for online retail fidelity account u.s equity and etf trades sell order assessment fee and some account types and securities excluded see fidelity.com commissions fidelity brokerage services member nyse sipc